You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. Well, this morning I want to talk about layers. And I saw many of you dressed very appropriately for Citizens. Amen? Layers. You got to wear a bunch because here in the basement, it could be freezing cold. It could be uncomfortably subtropically hot. Amen? Hey, y'all know it. Hey, it keeps the rent low. It keeps our trials high. It keeps us growing. That is, it's all intentional, guys. It's all intentional. But layers, uh, they're everywhere. And they intrigue us in life because there's always this idea of what's behind that layer. What's beyond that? What's deeper than that? I was reading a book with my daughter and it showed me this about the earth. That's okay. Oh, look at that. It's all intentional, guys, building suspense. Check this out. I had no idea all this stuff was going on. I thought there was just a hard surface, lava somewhere, and a big, thick core. Apparently, there's a lot of liquid going on, like an uncomfortable amount of liquid all through the middle of our planet. I had no idea. There's also layers in my daughter's favorite show. Is it cake? Have you all seen this? They get these amazing bakers to, to make cakes. They're so realistic that they put them in front of judges and say, which one's cake? And they reveal which one's cake by just slicing it with a knife. That's the whole show. Like, that's the whole show. And these cakes, usually they have fun layers. Take a look. I mean, nothing steps up a cake like having a great layer. You're like, oh, look, a little caramel in there. Who knows? But also, the layers that we talk about most is usually the onion. It's a thing we cut up. It makes us cry a little bit. It catches me off guard every time. I always think this is the time. It won't get me. It always gets me. I need to just grow up. But it's been used by a thousand therapists and counselors and pastors and consultants to do something like this, to explain that, hey, there's more going on in you. There's more than your skills. There's more than this. Your values drive you, your sense of allegiance or self-worth. There's a lot going on in a person, and they're right. And today's story, this passage, is a lot like that. There's probably a hundred good sermons in it. There's tons of lessons. But I want to start at the surface, and I want to kind of work down in to get to the very center of the onion. And I want you to go on this journey with me. And I want to start right on the surface, that looking in verses 11 and 12, we see what's obviously going on. It says this, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. They let us know off the bat that this wasn't an area that people loved traveling in because it was an area of conflict. Samaria was a different ethnic group, a different religious group than the Jews, and they were constantly fighting each other. Moreover, this area of Galilee had tons of Gentiles, non-Jews. It's where Jesus is from, but it is a mixture of people who don't all love each other. And we see a Jesus who goes to the borderlands, goes to the conflict places, goes to be amongst the people, even if it's an uncomfortable environment for everyone there. And then there's these lepers. 
And lepers are people who are suffering from a skin disease known as leprosy, or today as Hansen's disease. It was much more prevalent in the ancient world, but people still suffer from it today. And leprosy is painful. It causes lesions on the skin, then a discoloration of parts of the skin. It attacks the nervous system to where the sufferer eventually loses feeling in their hands and feet and causes disfigurement. It even can spread to their face and eyes and cause blindness. In the ancient world, it's incurable. Today it is, but in the ancient world, to have leprosy was a slow, long, painful descent into disability. But because it spread person to person by being in close contact, long before the disability set in, the isolation started. Because lepers in the ancient world were not allowed in towns or cities. They had to stay outside the city and form their own communities. And that's what we see here. The lepers aren't standing far off just from Jesus. They're far off from everyone. There are people unto themselves. Leviticus 13 has laws about lepers in the Old Testament saying they must stay outside the camp of Israel so as not to spread disease. And if they were to come within kind of shouting distance between me and Charlie or or me and Camden here, they were supposed to cover their mouth in a way and yell out, unclean, unclean, and let everyone know, hey, I'm a leper, whether you can tell or not. Stay away. And imagine the shame that the only thing anyone knows about you beside your other lepers is that you're a leper. And that the rest of your family, your relations, your friends, your former neighbors, they're gone. You just got to leave town. They couldn't join in the worship of God. They couldn't visit the temple. They're cut off from all meaningful community life and the larger community. And on the surface, we see this first layer right away that Jesus heals the sick. And he's been doing it a lot in Luke, so you might be like, I know, but it's every chapter. There's a reason it's every chapter. To prove that Jesus is God, he's powerful, but he's also compassionate. He's not afraid of the lepers. He's not afraid of their disease. They call to him and he answers. A good application would be say, hey, Follow and worship Jesus because he's actually powerful enough to do what no one can do, cure him. But he's also good enough to want to. But there's more here. Look what happens in verses 13 and 14. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, Jesus saw them, Jesus said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. They asked for help. They know who he is. They must have heard rumors. They must have seen people following Jesus, literally following Jesus. They knew this was a special man, and perhaps he was even God. They call him master, and they simply ask for help or relief. Notice what happens. There's no sales pitch. There's no recounting of a life story of why I deserve this. 
There's no pleading to say, look, I, I do this, or, or I'm good, or, or I'm Jewish even. You know, they, they don't bring up anything about themselves except their need. There are people in pain, and they cry out to God. And what's our Lord do? He gives us another layer that Jesus is merciful to all who ask for mercy. Jesus is merciful to all who ask for mercy. Whether you're new to Christianity or it's been around your whole life or in the South here, it might be your whole life. This is how Christianity actually works. That if you cry out for mercy, if you cry out in your need to God, He answers positively every time. There's no bargaining. There's no pleading. There's no proving. That's how God's mercy works. He comes and answers. That your cries are always heard. That's why we pray. We don't pray to prove something, God. We pray because he's listening. And that God's answer for mercy is always yes. Will we always understand or see how he answers it mercifully? Maybe so, maybe not. Isaiah 55 tells us that the Lord's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But God is good and true. And he will not withhold mercy from those who believe in him and genuinely ask for help. I want to show you what Psalm 40 says. This is a change your life sort of verse. It's go ahead and get the tattoo sort of verse. Put it on the bathroom mirror sort of verse. Teach it to your children to recite at night sort of verse. Look what Psalm 40 says. Verse four, this is for blessed is the one who trusts the Lord. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are one who trusts the Lord, then verse 11 is true for you today. It was true for you yesterday and it's true for you forever. As for you, O Lord, as for you, O Lord, not about us, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. How often has the devil convinced you that God's holding back, that God's holding out? But what scripture would tell me that if I trust the Lord and I earnestly ask in my need, is God restraining mercy from me? We'll try it again. Is God restraining mercy from you? Our God will not hold back his mercy from anyone who asks. That's an amazing thing. I hold back mercy all the time. I think of reasons not to be merciful. I got all sorts of stumbling blocks, and most of them are about me, not about the other person or the other thing. God says, I just let mercy fly. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. That's the hope of a Christian. To say, I've trusted the Lord. I ask for mercy as I need it. And guess what? I always do. And his steadfast love and faithfulness will never end. Jesus isn't a a butler to do our bidding, but he's a Lord who leads us along the paths of mercy like a great shepherd. 
If you call upon the Lord, he's not letting it go to voicemail. He's picking up the phone. And the lepers called and Jesus answered. And salvation works this way too. That's why I say, this is how Christianity works. If you're like, no, Christianity actually is this, 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 Justin. No, you're wrong. Christianity is the mercy of God coming to us in Jesus. Salvation works this way. It's not complicated. It's not far away. Listen to the promise of God in the Old Testament and the New. They say it twice because it's very important. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just think about that. There's no emphasis on your rightness or goodness. It's coming with your need and saying, I need you, God. Whether it's salvation or just getting through this afternoon, I need you, Jesus. God hears the cry of the needy and he answers them. He heard these lepers. But there's something unique about the miracle that Jesus does. Often when Jesus does a miracle, it's instant. It happens right there. You can think about the woman with bleeding or uh, the widow of Nan's child or, 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 or these different healings. They happen, bang, right there. And everyone's amazed and they're in awe of God. But this time he does it different. Jesus tells these 10 lepers, I want you to obey Leviticus 14. Kind of a deep cut from Jesus. He says, in Leviticus 14, it says, go to the priest if you're cleansed, let him declare you clean, perform a ritual, and reinstate you to the community. So he tells the lepers, go ahead and go to the priest, but the miracle hasn't been done. So it takes faith of these lepers to believe Jesus as actually can do what he says, and they go ahead and go. And somewhere along the way, Jesus' power as God does heal them. And we learn another layer. That Jesus demands our obedience and our obedience leads to blessing. Jesus demands our obedience and our obedience leads to blessing. The lepers obey Jesus and they are blessed with healing. Jesus actually expects obedience from them and he expects obedience from us to his word. And the promise of obedience is this, that our best life is obeying Jesus. The promise of obedience is that your best life is obeying Jesus because life with God is better than any other life. That the greatest blessing of a life, more than even renewed health, even more than saving from death, that the best life is with the greatest blessing, and that is Jesus. Your best life isn't great health. All these lepers will die still one day. Your best life isn't financial success. Your best life isn't a great relationship. Your best life isn't pleasing your parents or pleasing your children. Your best life isn't your safety, isn't security, isn't your comfort, isn't your popularity. In fact, the Bible is clear in many other places that following Christ will likely lead to hardships. It actually guarantees that hard things will happen if you follow Jesus. Yet obedience is worth it whether or not earthly blessings come. And sometimes they do. You do the right thing and there's a reward. It's wonderful but it's worth it because Jesus is the truer and greater blessing. The Samaritan makes the same realization. 
He's the one leper who's healed and returns. He realizes that his bodily healing is a blessing, but the greater blessing is back there with Jesus. The more important thing is actually not his renewed body, but the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate prize, not his healing. Look at verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, imagine seeing your skin, the discoloration change, the lesions disappear, feeling grow back into your hands and feet. He stops and turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Apparently he's running and singing the whole way home. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving him thanks. That word right there, giving thanks, it's used 37 times in the New Testament. And every single time, it's thanksgiving as worship to God. He's not coming back just to grab a selfie or leave a tip. He is coming back saying, you are God. Whatever doubt there was in his mind when he asked, whatever just hopeful or wishful thinking when he asked for Jesus in the beginning, He is now completely convinced that Jesus is God and deserves all the worship that God does. And he comes and lays at his very feet. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God himself, Jesus, except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This Samaritan experiences the double healing. He is healed physically by obeying the Lord, a blessing, but he's also spiritually healed by putting his faith in Jesus, a greater blessing. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that word healed in this passage, it means healed or saved, depending on the context. When it's bodily, it means healed. When it's spiritually, it means saved. And in this case, it means both. This man is transformed. And he's adoring Jesus as the mark of a true transformation. And he's not just thankful. He's back to give thanks. He's back to worship. And this man sees his healing isn't the greatest thing in his life, but Jesus is. Therefore, Jesus deserves our worship and thankfulness as God. Now, don't miss the connection between worship and thankfulness. They are directly tied to one another, our worship and our thankfulness. When I first became a Christian, I hated musical worship, hated it. I didn't really grow up in the church. I had to stand in rows of people. I I didn't know the words. I didn't know the music. I didn't like the songs. I had all of these problems. But the biggest problem in my life was, A, I had a problem with authority. So I didn't like being told what to do at all. So that was painful for every moment until I grew up. Um, And the second problem I had is that I just kind of had a ton of preferences, that I came in to worship God, mainly thinking about what I liked, and I hated every little piece of discomfort. I felt awkward about my voice. I felt awkward about my body. I thought somehow everyone was looking at me. How is that possible? I don't know, but I thought it. I didn't like the worship leader's vibe. I didn't, you know, I, I, I had a thousand things I did not like. But everything changed for me about two to three years into following Jesus. I was working as a camp counselor out in California, 
And I bumped in and made friends with some Christians that I'd just never met. And I noticed they loved worshiping Jesus more than anything else. I mean, some would worship in such a way that they were sweating and needing water afterwards, that it was a workout before the Lord. And at first I thought, this is the worst of all worlds. The thing I don't like is the thing they always do. And I'm here all summer without a car. We flew, there's no way to leave. But about midway through the summer, I started to think more and more, I think they were a little closer to right than bitter entitled Justin. And so finally I asked, the, the one who I was closest with, my friend that worships a pastor, I asked him why, and he, what he said to me was like a sword just in my side. It, it cut me down to an itty-bitty size. He said, uh, well, Justin, I worship Jesus simply because he deserves it, and worship's not about me. In other words, worship comes from thankfulness. And suddenly my entitlement was just exposed because deep down life and everything else was about Justin. And for worship to truly be worship, it's about adoring God. Or it's not worship. It could be a sing-along. It could be a religious ritual. But unless we're adoring God, it's not worship. And worship does benefit us. It is a spiritually good and refreshing thing to do, to put ourselves in right alignment with God and receive the truth and blessing of his spirit at work amidst the people. Absolutely, there's a benefit. But the point is the Lord first. The benedictive is derivative or comes from it. And that was the first thing I learned, but three things happened at worst. The second thing, that if worship was about God, I realized my preferences don't matter that much. And clearly, Jesus is worthy of worship. Clearly, Jesus demands worship even. It's a little uncomfortable to think, right? Like, if you met someone who demanded worship, you'd be like, man, what an ego. Well, unless they're the Lord of the universe. And you might be like, where does he demand worship? Man, right in the story, he goes, where's the other nine? It's uncomfortable because a lot of times we think of Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is just like us. And all of those are true, but they're not the whole truth. Jesus is also King of Kings. Jesus is also Lord of Lords. Jesus is upholding the universe all the time. He's both. And he demands our worship. So if we're hunting for reasons to not engage, we're missing the point of worship when we should just be overwhelmed that God loves us at all. And the last thing that happened, I just noticed when this part of my heart changed, my allegiance to Jesus, it just deepened. All of a sudden, my allegiance to being cool, my allegiance to being popular, my allegiance um, to being cynically smart and, you know, not wanting to be too invested. My allegiance to me started to fall. And my allegiance to Jesus started to grow. In the words of John the Baptist, I started to decrease a little bit. But Jesus started to increase in my life a lot. And we see that happening with the Samaritan. 
that he rolls up and just says, you are my God. The Samaritans didn't worship Jesus. He was converting on the spot from a different religion to this religion. And this religion, this is the Savior. There was a transformation going on in his heart. His heart was blossoming, just like mine was. Jesus will become more beautiful and more important to everything else as we let ourselves decrease and his importance in our life increase. Again, Jesus deserves our worship and our thankfulness as God. And Jesus highlights the failure of the other nine lepers who are presumably Jewish in the story, in the story not Samaritan. And as Jews, they should be the ones more likely to recognize the Savior and therefore come and worship. And there's a lesson here that's just a simple one, that if you try to obey Jesus to get something from Jesus, you usually end up further away from him. If you try to obey Jesus in order to get something from Jesus, you end up further away from the Lord. However, when you obey Jesus because he's Jesus, you end up delighting in the Lord. You can't manipulate God. He knows the secrets of our heart, as the scriptures would say. We can't trick him. We can't trick him with religious stuff. But if you come to God for God, you're not going to leave disappointed. He answers our prayers. He always gives mercy. And we see another layer with Jesus accepting this Samaritan, a non-Jew, that Jesus brings us together as his church. That Samaritans, Jews, Gentiles, everyone, including all of us, are welcome to worship Jesus and become his people. That's people of every ethnic, social, economic background are invited to worship Jesus. That we can belong to Jesus, and by belonging to Jesus, we can belong to one another as a church. Do you see how precious that makes the church? Do you see how precious that makes this church? That God is trying doing in the church, both globally and locally, what no government has ever pulled off to actually bring people together in love, to bring unity to people, not based on uniformity, not making us like each other, but rather finding unity in Jesus. That through the worship of Jesus, it binds our hearts to God, but then binds our hearts to one another. And then we see that the local church is a holy opportunity to give our lives to God and to give our lives to one another over and over and over to be a part of what God is doing both in the world, but also here in Birmingham. You were created for community. And notice with the Samaritan, Jesus doesn't try to change this man's language. He doesn't change his dress. He doesn't change his ethnic heritage. Instead, he heals him from the inside out. And the Samaritan is welcome to Jesus, a Jew, just as he is. His heart is changing. His beliefs about God are changing, but his culture, his heritage, his ethnic identity is welcome. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us in a divided Birmingham, that the gospel brings us together. It brings us together because Jesus is all of our Lord. And to bring that final layer Final layer to the story, layer that gets down to the center of the onion for you and I, 
you'd have to do a pretty careful study of the Old Testament to pick up on what the Lord is putting down here. But it's right there in Leviticus 14 when it describes what the priests were required to do when a cleansed leper actually showed up, which I have to imagine did not happen much because it's an incurable disease in the ancient world. So if, perchance, a cleansed leper showed up, this is what the priests would do per Leviticus 14. And I want you to think about Jesus' work and salvation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priests, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Remember, they weren't allowed in the camp, so you kind of have to come and by message let it known, I need a priest to come out here. I'm saying I'm clean. I'm cleansed. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds, cedar wood, a scarlet string, and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. And as for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop, tie it all together, dip and shall dip them and the live bird and the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times over the one who is to be cleansed from leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. The one to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes and shave off all of his hair and bathe in water and be clean. I know many of you have started a journey through the Bible in a year or something like that. You'll probably get here in March. And without a little context, this would be one of those moments you go, whew, gets a little weird in the depths of the Old Testament. Leviticus is a book of God's laws of how Israel, a sinful people, could live in relationship with their holy God. This passage is written thousands of years before Jesus would be born a man, live, die on a cross, and rise again as Messiah. But you got to remember, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus says, all Scripture points to me. All Scripture points to Jesus. The priest gets not just one bird, but two. He sacrifices the one bird in a bowl of, I think like a Pyrex dish, like a Tupperware. Someone's pouring water and they're killing the bird and makes this bloody mixture. If you've ever seen a bird die, there's not a ton of blood. That's probably why they make a mixture of this rosy, bloody water. And making the bloody water, he gets a cedar plank, probably something like this. He puts the live bird on it. He takes hyssop and throws it on there. It's like lavender here in the south, but maybe bigger and a little wilder. And they take scarlet string and wraps the live bird, not killing it, but securing a bird to a plank with hyssop, and then dips it all in the water. 
only to sprinkle the cleansed man or woman seven times. And here's the layer. Cedar wood, if you've ever cut it or held it, it's red inside. And it points to the source of true healing that one day a bloody wooden cross is what would take away our diseases and heal our sin. The scarlet string will show up a number of times in the Bible, usually in the temple. This is written before the book of Joshua. And in Joshua 6, a prostitute named Rahab would leave her people and put her allegiance to Jesus, to Jesus' people. And she would hang a scarlet thread out of her window to show her allegiance to Jesus. She'd become part of Israel, part of their people. And she actually would become a mother of Jesus and his family line. Someone who is not Jewish, but converted to Judaism. Scarlet thread points us to our true healing in Jesus. The same goes for hyssop. In the book of Exodus, it's a hyssop branch that God tells the Jews, use it like a paintbrush. Take the blood of the lamb on Passover, the first Passover. Dip hyssop in the blood and wipe it over the doorway, and you will be passed over of the angel of death and saved. Hyssop, it's all over the Bible, but it always points to Jesus. Just like someone literally pointing with blood on the end of the lamb, just like as it's used in the temple, just like when King David, after murder and adultery, cries out in Psalm 51, says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The priests used hyssop in rituals, but people used hyssop in daily life to be clean, like a part of soap for its medicinal properties. David cries out for God's hyssop, his scrubbing, his cleaning for his scarlet sins. And then finally in John 19, Jesus will be offered wine on the stalk of an overgrown piece of hyssop. Once again, in a final way, Hyssop is pointing at Jesus all the way from this little ritual through the end of the Bible. This ritual is to show us that while Jesus can heal ten sick men, he actually can save and heal all of us. That all the power to heal and save lives in a Jesus who died for us on a cross. And rose again. They would sacrifice the birds. And why are there two birds? Well, the first bird dies as a blood sacrifice, pointing out that blood must be paid for our sins. That Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But the blood of a bird can't atone for our sins or pay for our sins. That every animal that dies in the Old Testament is putting a forward hope to Christ that one day God would pay the price for us, for no animal or man could pay it alone. Jesus heals our soul by paying the guilt for our sins. It's an amazing gift to us that we were guilty of sins before God and deserved his wrath, but instead God sent his own son who lived a perfect life, 
and died for our sins, rising from death. If you trust Christ today, you are no longer guilty of sins because Jesus has paid for them. That's the first bird in the ritual. But what's going on with the second bird? The good news gets even better. The second bird symbolizes the cleansing from sin and the removal of disease from the leper, that it's cast out never to come back. We are washed in the blood and cleansed just like that bird. And we too are set free from the power of sin and death. Jesus pays for our sins, but Jesus also heals our souls, cleansing us of sin's shame. Guilt is what you feel when you commit a sin. Shame is what you feel when someone sins against you or this broken world degrades you. Shame is the feeling of unworthiness, condemnation, dirtiness, rejection, disgrace. And for sure, we can do things that bring, sin, bring shame on ourselves. But I want to speak to you a little closer here. If you've ever experienced abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, you ever been mistreated in those sorts of ways? Ever been called vile things? Experienced injustice? It can leave you with a deep, unsettling feeling of unworthiness. That would be biblical shame. And here's the good news. That Jesus forgives us of what we've done. But Jesus also cleanses us and heals us of what has been done to us. That's what the second bird symbolizes. Guilt from sin makes us rightly feel guilty about what we've done. But here's the stickiness of shame. It tends to mess with our understanding of who we are. It makes us feel like we need to stand far away from everyone like a leper. And that shame feels like a creeping disease that won't go away. But Jesus died and rose so that you could be free. Like a bird that belongs in an open field and not a cage. The story of your life doesn't have to be shame but instead the sweetness of a Savior who loves you, declares you have worth because you're made by God and loved by God, and cleanses you from the inside out. When I moved to my home here in Roebuck, about a mile or so from here, the house hadn't been lived in for about five years, which means it was gross. It was infested with everything. And to get it ready for my family, I would work from sunup to sundown on this house, and it would just be long, dirty, and sweaty, working with contractors, cleaning stuff up myself. You just had to get in there. And a highlight was uh, catching alive some wild birds that were living in my house. That was a highlight, you know, figuring that whole deal out. Didn't want to kill anybody. Not a priest. A low light came when discussing things with my 
painting contractor, he, he interrupted me and said, sir, there is a live cockroach on your chest. <laughs> Did kill him. And at the end of the day, after being hot and sweaty and grimy and gross and having industrial chemicals on me and all the things, a little blood, maybe a tear, I longed for a shower. I was staying in the Ebersold's basement uh, before the remodel, <laughs> and um, I would just long to get in the shower in their basement and get all of that off me to rub all the grime and the dirt and everything off. But after, I would feel clean, at rest, at peace with what I got done and what I left undone, and I'd just go to bed. I think a lot of Christians know that they're forgiven. If you're a Christian, that's a pretty basic deal. I think a lot of Christians know that God loves them. Maybe they go up and down in believing it, but they know God loves them. What I don't think a lot of Christians know or embrace is that they're cleansed. I think a lot of us walk around with the shame of our past defining an awful lot of our life. I know shame can motivate me instead of my Savior. I'm guessing he does the same for you too. You don't have to walk around even one more day with the stains of shame defining you. Jesus tells a different story and provides a deeper healing and cleansing, just like the skin disease off the leper. So you don't have to walk around with the feelings of shame over what you've done or maybe done to you anymore. It might be a process. It might take a long time but it's a journey that can begin today and right now to let the Lord have a little more of your heart and a little more of your hurt. The first bird is for our forgiveness. The second bird means we're washed and we're free. Take your shame to him. You are forgiven. You are washed clean. Let the gospel cleanse down to that deep layer of your soul. Our Lord saves and he sets us free.